Rusty Quill presents. You. Yes, you. Are you the type of person that likes puzzles? Then I have some questions for you. Want an itch that cerebral scratch? Do you like blending in more than standing out? Have a gift to overhear the gab. Do you easily fit under most average size furniture? Diminutive size is a must. What do you see here? If you answered yes to all of these questions, apply to the Department of Curiosity today. Don't worry about finding us. We'll find you. Remember me when I am gone away. Gone far away into the silent land. When you could no more hold me by the hand. Remember me when I am gone away. It started as a simple black fog, a cloud of soot and coal. Tendrils snaked up gutters and sneaked into open windows to hover over children's beds. Dirty fingers to grab an ankle or heel dangled over the edge. Anything to get a good grip and drag the unsuspecting off, drown out their cries with a choke, dark ash. The children of our city were no stranger to the tale. Adults had no hesitation to employ any means of keeping unruly kids in line. And it goes how it always goes. Adults translate superstitions with the times, projecting their fears into the corners of the unknown. The story is evolving as they did. What parents didn't realize was frightening children for bedtime gave their frights a name, and naming them brought them around in the twilight hours. The tale evolved as the city grew, as kids grew more savvy, as more strangers wandered the street. The soot cloud took on a name, Coalfinger. A bent man with broken teeth who wheezed through the streets at night, dragging a dirty bag to abduct the bad and unwanted children from their beds. Better be good or Coalfinger will get you, force you to work under the belching stacks, throw you in the pits where you'll suffocate in soot. The city expanded, and it became too big for a wandering man. The dark fairy tale evolved again, and Coalfinger needed not one child, but many. Didn't you hear? That one boy escaped, told the tale. That one girl that vanished? Coalfinger stole her forever. So now, to capture all the little ones, Coalfinger drove a black carriage, a cage in the back with solid bars and a big lock, a rumble of black dust and terror, its rickety wood creak freezing every child with the sound of any passing cart in the night. Oh, the children were afraid. They'll be good, they promise. Anything, anything, except left to be stolen by the soot man, kidnapped by Coalfinger. Please don't let that dark carriage roll down my street. Anything but that possessed Landau pulled by Shivers, whose name the children only whisper. If you're not good, it'll come for you. And so it got repeated over and over on every child's lips. She didn't get cholera. She was stolen by Coalfinger, driving his hideous hearse that had come to be known as the Black Volga. Every branch against the window, every roll of thunder brought the Black Volga even closer. 
Many a child sat up shaking, reaching for a bear or a doll or a blanket with every creak and groan of the floorboards. They were the only thing to protect us. The comforts of childhood, the safety of a blanket or teddy, or our sweet doll companions. They look after us as we sleep. They comfort us when we cry. They play with us when no one else will. When the time comes, we reluctantly bid farewell to them, to bits of ourselves. We slowly let our fingers slip apart, quietly wave goodbye and turn away. As we look for an old coat in these forgotten places, when we open the door to see their vacant, chipped faces, are they a decaying memento mori with their porcelain skulls? An anchor, more past as the clock ticks forward? Or do they stay with us? An animus flitting like a protective ghost from object to object. Do they watch us all of our lives, watching the child chip away, shake their head in disappointment, silently pleading with us not to abandon our innocence? Who will protect us from the scary tales, the legends we are told in daylight that keep us up and shivering under the blankets in the night? Waiting for the creak of the door, for something dark to drag us away. Clinging tightly to our dolls in the hopes that if we are stolen by a monster like Coldfinger, at least we are stolen together. In the entryway of the textile baron Edmund Green's house Mulberry sat an industrial loom named Mildred, an ochre iron beast, the first to be fired up at his original mill. On this day, Mildred was covered with a white sheet, wrapped in straps, attached to pulleys, and hoisted up the long stairs into storage. Edmund had a surprise. Workmen brought in a large wooden display case with tinted emerald glass painted in waves to look like water. They situated it where old Mildred usually sat, facing the glass towards the door so no one who entered the house could miss it. It was a dark, polished wood with custom fittings for lighting on the interior. Edmund had to do something to control the narrative. There'd been a fair amount of scuttlebutt surrounding pond happenings bordering on scandal. He needed to show he was in control. There was nothing like a surprise to change the subject. Another set of men brought in a long case. They carefully set it on the floor and opened the lid. The contents were delicately wrapped and the case padded to absorb any shock. Men with white gloves removed the contents and set them carefully inside the display, taking painstaking steps to situate them just right. When finished, they closed up the display doors and covered the whole thing with a large canvas sheet attached to a gold cord. Edmund had planned an elaborate dinner, and the reveal would be a surprise that would have all of Park Row in murmurs. Charity Suter, his ward's governess, peered down from the second floor at all the commotion. She'd asked what he'd purchased, but Edmund was keeping everything a tightly guarded secret. Enoch, a quiet orphan, peered through the ornate balusters of the stairs. He held the book that Charity had been reading to him, a storybook called The Teacup Groom, about a girl that falls for a little vole in a waistcoat named Mr. Fairbanks, the title referring to the teacup he slept in on the nightstand. 
Charity didn't like seeing Mildred suspended and wrapped the way she was, dragged up the stairs into one of the side rooms. How easily Edmund swept her away the moment something new caught his fancy. Whatever Edmund was bringing in had an eerie presence about it. The men somber and quiet as they worked, almost like they felt guilty or were under some kind of suspicion. Charity didn't like it. Enoch needed quiet. He needed consistency ever since the accident, and Edmund kept stirring the pot. But Edmund wasn't the only one making changes this warm day. Workers and carriages maneuvered around each other in the street of the Park Row Brownstone Mansions. All of the Park Row Barons had a special attribute that had helped them ascend the heights of success. Edmund was an opportunist and seized the moment with agility. The Spirits Baron had an abundance of charm. Leopold Walker, the Lie Baron, had deep connections throughout the city. And the Salt Baron, Cesarin Fulcrum, was utterly ruthless. He had a nasty fencing scar from his jaw to his temple to illustrate this fact. It was not only him. His entire family had a stalwart posture as they had spines of iron holding them upright. They simply never backed down from a fight and were never known to have compromised. They weren't particularly organized or efficient, but ran their lives through sheer momentum and presence. His wife, Agatha Fulcrum, had a razor-sharp eye for art and rising talent. She filled the Halat house with amazing works from the classic to the avant-garde without a hint of pretension. Edmund's recent addition to his foyer, whatever it was, seemed to have Agatha nervous. She glared with her hands at her sides as she watched it loaded into Mulberry House, and then hurried inside to rearrange the drawing room for the second time that month. Movers in a line holding paintings bobbed up the steps and into the house, and she left the front door wedged so the neighborhood could hear her shouting with authority. Baron Fulcrum had two daughters, Fanny and Temperance. Fanny Fulcrum was just old enough to resent everything about her parents and had run off to spend her days and nights in the luxuries of the downtown playboys. She had been a sugar baby for several married older men in an obvious attempt to get under her father's skin, but if it did, he didn't show it. Temperance Fulcrum was the shine in her father's eye from the day she was born, a reality that spurned Fanny's rebellious nature. Strangely, Fanny never held it against Temperance herself, and allied with her sister on many occasions to hatch a dubious plot to sneak out the bedroom windows at night to meet boys in the nearby hollow of Lanula Park. Temperance Fulcrum was school age, shared in the road tutor's lessons, and had reduced any governess to a puddle with a simple glare. She had a determination her from the moment she could stand on her own. She was demanding, impatient, and brutally competitive. The most recent example had been in the Park Cotillion, a semi-private party set on large open grass, a daytime tent soiree of the Salad Days variety. It was the summer event for the stylish. Champagne and canopies, croquet and flamingos. In the weeks leading up to the Cotillion, there had been a couture trend towards a mutton sleeve and dresses. Many of the girls had their wardrobes thrown out and a rush of new options were constructed by personal tailors and dress maidens. Each girl showing up to the next event with brighter colors or more prominent sleeves. This led to an increasing competition among the girls, until more fabric was dedicated to the mutton sleeve than the dress itself, draping over the arms, getting in the way of mouths when attempting to sip tea or wave. Only the richest girls could keep having new dresses built every week as the fad peaked. Temperance Fulcrum, with her nearly inexhaustible supply of funds from her father's salt empire, arrived at the cotillion in a scattering of gasps and murmurs. 
She walked under the grass not only with a gorgeous dark pink dress and train, but with sleeves with muttons so big, her friends Ivy and Beatrix had to flank her on each side, holding up a mutton shoulder, struggling in the heat under the material. The trend ended like many did, with Temperance willing to go to the extremes that no other girl would. She was admired and reviled and even a little bit feared, even by the adults. After that moment, the other girls bent the knee. It was Temperance's world now. Ivy adjusted the hair of her new doll, Matilda, an oleander doll with silky hair, vibrant eyes, and white teeth. It was handcrafted and stunning in its detail. The eyes opened and closed as you rocked it back and forth, and you could even pick the color. They were all the rage and sold out in the only store you could find them. Temperance pretended not to care, and quashed the urge to snatch it out of her hands, just to smash it and wipe that smug look off of Ivy's face. Mr. Pedigree even gave me this oleander when I got her at the shop, Ivy said. He said that I was a very special girl and that I deserved Matilda, and Matilda deserved the sweet flower. That's what Mr. Pedigree said. Is that what Mr. Pedigree said? Temperance asked flatly, mocking her. The girl, the curio, Maisie Myers looked out of place in the light, her ash coat just covering her shiny Mary Janes, her black trilby slightly askew on her head, an odd uniform for the hot day sun. She cast a long shadow taller than her short stature. She stood in front of Edmund Green's house mulberry, watching the display case loaded through the front door. She ate a lemon ice from the bell cart man strolling between the shade of trees. Well, well, Maisie Myers, is that you? Temperance called out, shielding the sun from her eyes with a decorative paper fan. Maisie turned to look at Temperance. Ivy adjusted a lace glove on herself and then a matching one on her doll Matilda, a shade lighter in green. Maisie squinted and walked over to the steps at Highlight House. Temperance looked down at her as if she were addressing one of her subjects. Who is it, Rennie? Ivy asked Temperance. That's Maisie Myers, or I guess Maisie the Curio now, as much as it's Fonda the butler or Tina the housemaid. Why is she dressed like that? Ivy asked. Let's ask her, Temperance said. What are you doing here? Temperance called down. I'm working, Maisie said. Aren't you supposed to be snooping on underground crime syndicates or scanning the Duncan's money books or something? I'm more of a ghost stories variety, Maisie said. Good to see you, Temperance. How's Fanny? Don't you know? Aren't you supposed to know everything? She crossed her arms. Maisie shook her head. I don't get it. I don't get all of this. The coat, the everything. First you test into advanced tutors way early, and then just when your parents split, you get recruited by this weird, what is it, agency? Department. Department? I don't understand a little girl with an occupation. It's like you were pulled into a secret cult. This piqued Ivy's curiosity. Did they torture you? Did they make you drink strange things? Did they ask you all sorts of questions? Ivy asked. Temperance was annoyed. Yeah, Ivy. Did they lock her away like your mom locked you in a box for talking back? It wasn't a box. It was a hope chest, Ivy pouted. Same thing. Did you hope she would let you out? Seriously, Ivy, three days? How do you even pee? Did you just make a little cup with your hands? Rennie, stop. That's harsh, she recoiled. My papa bought me Matilda to make up with me. Her smile returned as Ivy stroked the doll's hair. Maisie tried to hide a smirk. 
What are you smiling at? Temperance fumed. Don't think I don't remember that stupid wooden egg you used to carry around everywhere. Still in your pocket? Do you even have friends anymore? You vanished out of society and like your kid acting like some burnt out detective. Maisie laughed. I like puzzles, Rennie. They give me puzzles. Like, come on, I know you don't aspire to just hanging art all day. She gestured at the house. This made Temperance fume. She was incredibly sensitive about anyone saying anything about her family. At least my parents didn't wind their way into the workhouse. At least I'm not some little dark freak wearing this junk in the middle of summer recording secrets and whispers for some spooks in a department. Do you get paid in conspiracies? Temperance took steps towards her, poking her finger in her chest. She was considerably taller than Maisie. Maisie turned but twisted her ankle and fell. Mr. Fitz, the doll she kept in her coat pocket, flung out on the sidewalk. His arm and leg busted off into pieces, his painted egg body rolling into the grass. Ivy stood up, tempted to help, but didn't want to challenge Temperance. Temperance stood over Maisie. Don't you ever talk about my mother again. If I catch you around here, I'll have my father put the curios to work hauling salt carts. Imaginary friends are for babies. Maisie, are you a baby? Temperance Salina Fulcrum, her mother shouted from inside the house. Temperance picked up her skirt, turned, and made her way up the steps. She stopped by Iviana. My mother would never lock me in a chest like that, because she knows I'd bleed her in her sleep. Ivy recoiled. It's okay, Rennie stroked Matilda's hair. I'd leave just enough in her so she could pull herself down the hall to suffocate me with a pillow, Temperance said before continuing into the house. Ivy looked disturbed, but sheepishly followed into Halite House. Maisie wiped tears from her eyes, winced at the pain of her ankle, and gathered the parts of Mr. Fitz to limp away. Not far away on a bench overlooking the pond, a portly fellow named Hughes fed ducks from a wrinkled bag of breadcrumbs. His bushy sideburns and mustache bristled as he stole a section for himself. He had turned slightly to hear the exchange faintly in the distance on the warm wind, the ducks quacking. He was constable working the park beat from Needle Street, but was currently suspended. Now just a civilian feeding the ducks. He still walked the park, still looked for trouble, but missed his overcoat and top hat. He dumped out the rest of the crumbs on the ground. A flurry of ducks rushed in to nibble them all up. He strained to his feet, shook out the bag. He met Maisie as she sat down on a nearby bench, crying, holding her broken doll, Mr. Fitz, in her hands trying to get the pieces to fit back together. She looked at Hughes and back at the broken Mr. Fitz. He won't, she blubbered. I can't hear him. Like this, he's... he's broken. This was even more than that. Rennie had cut deep, opened up old wounds and memories, dug the past right up around her and then broke her only friend. Hughes was surprised to see her cry, he put his hand on her back. It'll be all right, child. Let's see what we have. He carefully took the pieces and placed them in the bag, rolled it up tight. He helped Maisie to her feet and wiped away a tear with his thumb. Can't be having the grams of the DOC hearing you cry like this, can we? We'll get them fixed up and then get some ice cream into you. Maisie gripped his shirt cuff tighter than he expected and looked into his face with some relief. This needs an expert, and I know just the place to get them all fixed up. 
Come with me now, Maisie. We'll go see Mr. Pedigree. He runs the city's finest doll hospital. Broken memories, things we want to stay buried. The dolls of our heroes who have fallen out of favor. Do we lose our connection to the old workhouse looms that got us this far? Those magic fetish? Our families? The reliable comfort that connect us to our imaginary friends? When they break, when we can't seem to hear them or understand anymore, where do we go to get fixed? Not far now. Mr. Pedigree is just around the corner. He'll get us all fixed right up. We can evade Coldfinger and the Black Volga for just one more night in the next episode of Celine. Would you like a ticket to enjoy the revelry of Noon Night Affair? Our Patreon is a place where you can see all the sordid savagery and indecent decadence of the mysteries of our fair city. Want some answers for once? Solve the mysteries and share never-before-heard stories, music, and spectacle. Come be a part of Moonlight Affair, Silent Treatment, and Selene with the other spirits again and 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 again. And again.